Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and I'm glad to be back after a few weeks away. We ran a few shows from previous uh, in the year, and uh, it's always good to have a little bit of a break uh, from each week. Of course, the political cycle, the, the news cycle, never stops. And so you know that there are many, many issues that are going on if you're in touch with media, with news media, and following a number of issues in politics. But of course, this show is not about uh, breaking news and uh, up-to-the-minute information. Uh, it's more about engaging with critical issues that are happening at the local, state, and federal, and international levels from time to time, and about bringing you uh, in-depth analysis and looking at these issues and trying to understand them so that you have the information you need to have informed discussions uh, and make informed decisions about how you engage with politics, with the political sphere, uh, and with various policy issues in terms of the role of government and its impact on our lives. And of course, this is front and center right now, as we know, related to the pandemic uh, because of the, re the surge in the Delta variant uh, that is happening around the country and affecting almost every area, every corner of the country itself. And a few weeks ago, I interviewed Dr. David Blocker, the Hood County Public Health Authority, uh, in discussing this. And I wanted to go back to, to something in that interview uh, that was very critical, I think, in understanding what is happening right now with the Delta variant. And one part of that was focused on the pandemic, the influenza pandemic of the early 20th century, and how it took several years to get out of that cycle of variants, especially in large metropolitan urban areas where people are much closer together, uh, in a way, a, in a virus that spread in a very similar way. And of course, then the use of, of, of masks, the focus on trying to develop vaccines and, and so forth. And of course, this effort was much more engaged and advanced in terms of the technology that we have and trying to develop a vaccine. And it seemed like at one point in addressing COVID, we were seeing it diminish significantly uh, because of the availability of vaccine, but also because of policies put in place uh, related to masking and social distancing and so forth. Uh, now with this uh, surge and with, uh, uh, we're moving back in the, in the direction to see uh, record numbers of hospitalizations. Uh, we, there's different facets of this, especially different uh, political aspects of this that, that are very much engaged with what's going on uh, with this issue. And we want to focus on a few of those. One of the things that we talked about in that interview were variants and the fact that the more the virus is prevalent and the more it spreads, the more likely that you're going to have different variants. And, and some of those could be stronger or weaker. Uh, as we see with the Delta uh, variant, it is stronger. Uh, it, there's a very low percentage of vaccinated people uh, getting it, but they can spread it. Uh, there's also um, a greater risk to children in what we're seeing in the, in the data and the information that's coming out. And of course, the impact on our healthcare system, on ICUs, on the need for ventilators, on healthcare staff. Uh, it's really, uh, as one writer put it, a, a deja vu here of what we were seeing last year uh, with the rapid growth uh, in infections. And so uh, I wanted to talk about a couple of the issues because this time this with this vaccine and with the way forward, or not the vaccine, with the virus, and of course with masking vaccine, with uh, policies and on the policy side of it, uh, this is new territory. This is different territory, not only because we're a century removed, uh, but because of the way in which politics are very much wrapped up in the response to this. Uh, when you look at it across the nation and the way different states and local governments are handling it, how the medical uh, community is handling it and, and trying to address it and trying to push for uh, government to act in certain ways. Uh, in education, we see this in public schools. Here we are on the cusp of a new school year, and that's another challenge as well. First of all, in talking about the politics of this, one of the things that we're seeing that makes this even more challenging uh, now 
as compared to a year ago when we were going into a school year where masking or uh, where uh, remote uh, synchronous or remote uh, uh, Zoom and so forth were being used in terms of delivering education. Uh, but one of the things that's a that's a, a dynamic that has impacted this all along and I've covered on earlier shows is political culture itself. And I've looked at that before and how political culture, especially here in Texas, has had an impact on the responses of the governor, of members of the legislature, uh, even local governments around the state. And if we, even though political party and affiliation is a factor here, if we were to put that aside, political culture and public perception of how governments are handling this uh, are a critical factor. And so in politics, uh, you, you, you look at that in terms of what support you have for what you're doing. You look at that in terms of future elections and how people will portray this and look at it. Uh, that's just part of, of politics. And, and so it's always a risk, right? Because you could come down on the side of something. And if you hold to that over time, public opinion uh, may change on that issue and thus have a negative impact on your political fortunes. And so this is something that's there and prevalent. Now, I don't want to diminish that uh, or, or to, I don't want to diminish the uh, public service that people are offering in elected office in terms of their concern for the public and trying to identify policies that uh, they think are appropriate to meet whatever need or challenge is there. Uh, that is certainly there. Okay, I, don't, I, I don't want to come off that all elected officials, all politicians are, are motivated by uh, the, the policies that resonate with their base. But that is, it is heavily influential. It is important in looking at your political future and in winning elections. And it is important to the extent that it can be an influence at times that even though we have data that is showing, even though we have experience in seeing hospitals full and seeing this impact of the surge uh, due to the Delta variant, uh, the, that that view that comes from your constituents who may not be fully informed about all aspects of that. They may not be affected in some way by it, uh, although that's changing very rapidly. And I'll talk about a poll in a moment, at least across the nation, that's showing that there is slight movement in those who were unvaccinated and wanting to be vaccinated and those who are concerned about uh, the spread of the Delta variant and how that may be changing their views on how political officials uh, and government are dealing with this. Uh, so politics are very much involved in, in that. And when it comes to vaccinations, as we've seen here in recent months, when it comes to mask mandates and whether who has the power to say you can or can't use this, as we see it being uh, played out now in the courts uh, via local government and school districts, especially here in Texas, that are putting in mass mandates. You have in other states, you have uh, institutions that are requiring, uh, and, and even here, and we saw this with restaurants in Austin and other places, they're requiring proof of vaccination or you, you, vaccination required to come back to school. We're seeing that in places around the country. These become uh, very political issues, probably much more politically charged than some uh, issues related to the pandemic was over a century ago. Uh, just given the, the nature of our political environment, of uh, the partisanship that characterizes much of politics in our nation, and the uh, how you move and navigate within this uh, based on a political agenda or particular focus uh, that is made by a political party and by political leaders. And so I want you to be aware of this. I, I, I think most people deep down will understand this because even if you see what's going on, even if you if you read up on it and you see the data, you see all the information, that's not driving a lot of the response in many places. The, the, the data itself is not driving a response. The demand on health services, on hospitals, uh, the infection rate, uh, and how high it is among unvaccinated people. That's not driving the response of, of, of some of what government is doing. Unelected officials are looking at what options they may have. 
when this is certainly much more severe when we look at it now than it was when we first entered the pandemic, when many decisions were made right away, when infection rates were very low. Uh, however, of course, it, it began to spread. Now, infection rates are, are, are high and it's spreading very rapidly again. Uh, and yet there's a hesitancy in many places to implement policies or to give the, 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 uh, the breadth of, of options that even local governments can make those decisions as well. Uh, so we're going to continue to see this played out politically. And on the policy side, we have to also include that. So we've talked about uh, the politics of, of vaccinations, the politics of uh, mandates, of mass mandates, uh, uh, as we see it in different ways and how people are engaging with this uh, within government. But also, what are policy implications uh, going forward? And what we see right now is that's varied around the country. Uh, it's still very much a a, a state-driven issue with these battles between state and local governments happening within the states themselves. And so this is the approach that I was very much concerned about under the Trump administration in initially dealing with the pandemic, the challenge of understanding federalism, of that relationship between the federal government and the states especially on an issue like this that is affecting the nation as a whole, and especially one in which the federal government has poured billions of dollars in resources to address the economic impact, to address the public health needs, to the development of vaccinations, the delivery of vaccinations. Uh, the policy side of this is, is very, very critical in that relationship. And one of the things I've said in the past was that the role the president should have had in this was instead of, of let, leaving it up to the states and kind of pitting at times states against each other for supplies and resources and so on, is to, to work to develop a, a consensus plan, uh, a way in which the states and the federal government could work together uh, to address the pandemic and to move forward in, in, in thwarting its impact. We're still at that level, though, where it's been very difficult now because in a change of presidential administrations, now you have many states that have had their own challenges related to the pandemic. And we're not just talking the public health or economic challenge. We're talking about the political challenges that then makes this even more politicized when you talk about collaboration between federal and state governments. Uh, and so the likelihood of a greater level of collaboration is really not there at this point, unless this gets so severe uh, that people drop everything aside and say, okay, we, we've got to get out of any really connection politically here with this, and we need to come together around policies that will uh, help us to defeat the pandemic, or at least to, to push it down where it's manageable. And so I don't see that happening anytime soon. I don't think we will see that in especially uh, with some sa states and the Biden administration, uh, what we could see, and so this is one of the things that people have put out as an idea or as a possibility on the policy front, is that Congress acts. Congress acts in some way that circumvents uh, state ad administrators, especially those who are uh, opposed to policies that try to uh, limit the impact of the pandemic, uh, such as then vaccinations or more specifically mass mandates and gives that power to local governments. And based on the CDC guidelines and the thresholds where this moves from being a managed issue to a crisis issue, that they allow local governments to make those calls and decisions. That's, that's what some state governors have done is try to limit that authority. Although again, we're seeing that challenge in Texas as well as other states where school districts and businesses and others, counties are saying, no, we're putting mass mandates back in place in order to deal with the surge that is happening at this point. Congress could uh, do something along that line uh, especially connected to appropriations of federal resources uh, that would, in a sense, force the issue past state-level government down to the local level. Uh, instead of there being these broad policies uh, 
especially in a state like Texas or Florida, you see in other states where uh, you have large urban centers that are being impacted a certain way. Uh, thus, that impacts rural areas as well. If they're struggling with the virus or not in terms of what medical facilities they have. So this could have a, a, a ripple effect in that way, and it could give local government more flexibility uh, to be able to make those decisions to deal with public health issues, especially here as we're entering a school year and there's concern now about infection rates among children who have not been vaccinated and what the challenges may be of navigating that uh, going forward into the school year with the Delta variant and the fact that it's not anywhere near under control at this point. And there are very much concerns about how it may impact uh, children, how it may impact public education. Uh, if you've got uh, large numbers of students having to quarantine, uh, if you have uh, severe illness among children as well. So again, COVID pandemic, very much wrapped up in politics. Uh, there are, are, as we all know, and if you've been out there engaged in any way with social media or uh, mainstream media through TV or radio, uh, you'll know that there's a, a lot of push back and forth on so many different issues of this. What I encourage you to do, and this is why I had the interview with Dr. Blocker, is that you need to get out and look at the data. You need to look at the science behind this because there is misinformation out there. There are people who are trying to get their moment of fame by saying, oh, not this, not this, not this, uh, when it's very clear that there's a tremendous amount of data uh, showing the importance of masking and social distancing and preventing growing infection rates, uh, the, the importance of vaccines and the vaccines that have been developed and how they were developed and what uh, seeing the rates of protection that they offer uh, and seeing, I mean, 80% of our population 65 and older now uh, have been vaccinated across the United States. And so there's a, a, a number of people who are, are who are protected, though now, you know, they're recommending boosters for those that are at high risk. We'll probably see that uh, spread even more if this continues to go in a, a bad direction in terms of the surge, uh, that all people who were previously vaccinated will be encouraged to get uh, boosters, not uh, unlike how the flu vaccinations have developed uh, and how that happens and people are encouraged to do that uh, on an annual basis. Uh, but I encourage you to get out there and look at the data, get the information, go to reliable sources uh, not just the first thing that you see on the internet or the first thing you see on Facebook, and look at the data out there that is a solid, that is showing us uh, what a path forward, uh, because I think that's going to be the concern as we look to uh, the months ahead. Where, where do we go from here? Uh, we are in a more, as I said, difficult place than we were last year, not only because of the Delta surge where and you've got many medical professionals saying, here we go again, here we go, are going through this and we, and we don't have to, we had this uh, under control. We need to put these uh, policies in place and these actions in place to take responsibility and also be concerned for the lives and well-being of others so that we can get this under control and make it manageable. And right now, because of the surge, because of uh, the, the different views about it, about vaccinations and so on, because of the politics of it, uh, there, there's not a very clear future as to where we go from this. As, uh, you've got some now that were saying we could have variants from this, but if we can get a vaccine and if we can get it under control, uh, we should be fine. Well, they said that, and then we've had so many people who have not been vaccinated, which is the 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 high percentage of those that are contracting uh, this Delta variant and, and thus raising hospitalization rates and, um, and, and the, the challenges and the needs within our, uh, our health systems. Um, and, and now they're not willing to predict the future because if there's not this, this concerted effort across the country to follow policies that will prevent greater spread, and that will also prevent the possibility of even stronger variants, uh, then we're, we're going to be stuck in this pattern uh, going forward uh, until we can get through enough variants 
and enough people survive it uh, with uh, some level of immunity to it uh, that we could get beyond and see these numbers diminish. Because uh, there is the likelihood that a, a, another severe variant may not uh, develop since this thing is spread around the globe like it had. But there's also the possibility, just as you know, a, a worldwide pandemic was a low percentage of possibility, but possible. Okay, here it's happened. Uh, so variants, additional variants could come forward uh, that could pose even greater risk or spread uh, among those who are either not vaccinated or those that are not uh, protecting themselves. And so we, we, it's really unclear. I mean, I think that's when you look out there in the literature, when you look out there at the interviews of people who are in the medical professions and the scientific communities that have looked at this, uh, it's not as clear now because you have all of these factors of which I'm pointing out on this show uh, is the political factor. Now, there's also that is very much connected to public opinion. And one of the things that I wanted to point out on the show today, and I'll post this on our Facebook page, where I always put related articles to the stories that we cover. Uh, It's an Ipsos uh, Axios poll uh, that just came out uh, that looks at uh, the... uh, where where the blame lies with this, you know, in terms of public opinion, uh, the main thing here, it suggests that unvaccinated America's opposition to shots is declining very slowly. Uh, but it also shows that vaccinated America blames the unvaccinated for the Delta surge. The unvaccinated America blames everyone else. Uh, I just want to look at some of the findings of this because I think we can see very clear connections with Uh, political aspects of this, as well as policy. The first one, American concern with the coronavirus pandemic has resurged with the spread of the Delta variant. So three and four, three out of four Americans are concerned about the new Delta coronavirus with just over half of the unvaccinated concerned about it. So I think this shows what, why we are seeing the results that we are uh, three out of four in total around the country are concerned about it, but a majority of those are people who are vaccinated, whereas just over half, 56% of unvaccinated are concerned about Delta. Half of Americans believe returning to pre-COVID activities to be risky. Okay, so every other person says, hey, we, we, we can't go back to full uh, activities thinking that this thing is not here and present and affecting people. Primarily, this is among the vaccinated, unvaccinated, uh, 43%. Uh, The level of perceived risk is up 13 points uh, from mid-July and up 24 points from late June. So Delta is having an effect. People are seeing and hearing about what's happening, and thus perceived risk of COVID is uh, increasing uh, and has over the summer. The second question to look at here, the country's reemergence from the pandemic has stalled as protective measures have increased. The number of Americans who have gone out to eat has declined now by two points uh, to 58%. Of course, this poll is uh, about a week and a half ago, so uh, these numbers are, are changing and we could see even more variants than this. And the number who visited friends and family have declined by five points to 62%. Uh, so we're, we're, we're losing ground there where people are starting to adjust their activities. Almost half of Americans say they are social distancing, up three points from mid-July and 12 points from June. 57% of Americans report wearing a mask all or some of the time, up five points from mid-July. What about willingness to get the vaccine? It's increasing slightly. Over three quarters of American adults 77% have either gotten the vaccine or say they are likely to do so, up two points from uh, the middle of last month. Additionally, the number of Americans who are a hard pass or not at all likely to get the vaccine has declined to 15%. So this has had an impact on people who are reconsidering. There are some that are not uh, very strongly uh, supportive of getting a vaccine or very, very likely, but they're, they're considering now. It's not as much of a, like he's, this poll says, a hard pass. 
Parents are also slightly more likely to consider having their children vaccinated. Hard opposition to vaccinating children has also fallen four points from mid-July to stand at 25%. Uh, another one proposed measures to convince the unvaccinated to get the shot appear to have moderate to minimal impact. So we're not seeing much movement in those that are uh, opposed and want to remain unvaccinated. Uh, but what it said here was, however, it is important to note that among the unvaccinated, approximately half continue to express an openness to the vaccine. So that shows that low rate. And I think as this goes further, if there, if there are not significant changes in a, in a positive direction in controlling the Delta variant, we're probably going to continue to see more trending in that where those who are unvaccinated are going to say, you know, I, I probably need to do this. Uh, and thus, you know, the, the be seeking out those uh, op options to do it. Another, despite criticism of recent rule changes, Americans' trust in the CDC is virtually unchanged. Of course, this, again, can become a very political issue, but two-thirds of Americans say they trust the CDC to provide them with accurate information, essentially unchanged from the 67% in mid-July. Uh, almost all Americans, 95%, have heard about the CDC's recent update in mask usage guidance. So evidently the word's getting out. Evidently people are, are watching and listening uh, to the impact of this, uh, especially here as we're on the cusp of the school year, that uh, some may be seeing this uh, in concern about what's going to happen in, in terms of children and, and educational settings uh, that could be at higher risk. Vaccinated and unvaccinated America look in very different directions for the cause of the current surge. This is very interesting as well. Four out of five, 79% of the vaccinated point to the unvaccinated as who they blame for rising cases. Uh, beyond the unvaccinated, a third point to Donald Trump, conservative media, and people from other countries traveling to the United States. So very, very interesting of, of uh, where people are directing uh, the cause and looking at the cause of this surge. Among the unvaccinated, there's not a single group pointed to as the main cause, especially not the unvaccinated, 10%. Among the leading culprits are people traveling to the U.S., Americans traveling abroad, and mainstream media, and Joe Biden. Okay. So, so again, this is all very interesting to see how people are responding to this and how they're directing this and looking at it uh, in terms of what the source of the, uh, the surge is and how it should be responded to. Uh, there's some other questions in here uh, 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 that are, I think, important in understanding that have a, a somewhat of a, a, a political connection. Uh, I, I'll refer you to the poll. As I said, I will link it with Facebook because it has a lot of things about how people understand uh, covid and, and, and the science uh, behind it. Um, but there are also some questions here uh, on, uh, such as, here's a, another one, Americans are divided on the need for vaccines or proof of vaccine status as the country reopens. Uh, a majority of Americans report uh, require, support requiring vaccination and a proof of vaccination to travel or attend a large event. About half of Americans support requiring vaccination to dine indoors, 47%, go to a salon, 49%, or return to places of employment, 52%. However, Democrats and Republicans are far apart on these three quarters of Democrats support showing vaccine status uh, compared to 29% of Republicans. Uh, so you can see that there, again, the political elements of this uh, in terms of uh, views about vaccination and proof of vaccination. Um, there's a couple of others here that I want to point out before we take a, a, a quick break. Um, detailed findings here that in the past week, a majority have gone out to eat or visited friends and relatives. Uh, we talked about that. So how social distancing being encouraged, but also uh, in terms of how people perceive this issue in returning uh, to uh, normal. 
Overall, mask usage while out of the home is declining. However, vaccinated Americans still report wearing masks more regularly than unvaccinated Americans. Vaccination status is becoming a topic of conversation, but less so in the workplace. Most Americans support having to show proof of vaccination for certain travel and leisure uh, activities. Um, nearly all of Americans are aware of the pause in the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccines uh, almost right after it was announced. The vast majority believe health officials are acting responsibly in taking this step. So there's many other aspects of this poll that I want to, to connect you with as I'll post on, on Facebook, as I said. Uh, but it's a very interesting read to look at where people are across the nation and, and engaging with this and uh, understanding the different facets of it, especially uh, the role government has in it. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we are going to talk about a couple of other issues. Uh, one, the Engageus project, Back to Swing Voters, and how they understand Capitol Hill politics. And then also we'll wrap up the show with a little bit of, of a look at the politics of civil rights. We'll be right back. T for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow. We're glad you're with us today, and I'm glad to be back after a few weeks away. And we ran some different shows, but we are back with new content, engaging with some of the current issues, and offering information that takes you more in depth on issues that are impacting you, especially looking at the politics and policy side of it, so that you have more information and understanding how this happens in the uh, the world of politics. And one of the things that is really interesting and engaging that I always think in terms of asking people to think more in depth uh, is looking at how people understand uh, and, and see, you know, engage with resources that help them to understand how politics actually works on Capitol Hill. Uh, there was an article that came out earlier in the month that I'll post on Facebook. It was on smirconish.com. Uh, taken from Engageus, which I've talked about on the show before, which is an ongoing swing voter project. And what we mean by swing voters, as I've explained before, are those who vote one way in one election, presidential election, but then shift to the other candidate, opposite party, in the next election. So these were would be voters who voted for uh, Clinton, uh, in, in that election in 2016 and then uh, switched to uh, Trump, so they changed parties, or they voted for Trump and then switched to Biden in the next election. And this is, project is insightful. It's small groups that they bring together and get their perspective on particular issues because these are people who are often much more engaged in the issues and are voting based on a, a one or a specific range of issues uh, and how they think the candidate for president will uh, be able to be successful in dealing with those issues. So there's a lot of different topics uh, on the Engageus website, but I wanted to go to this one article and talk a little bit about this because I think it fits right in line with the focus of our show, and that is helping people see behind the scenes, see a little bit more about what is going on in the world of politics, what are the political implications, motivations, influences that lead to the outcomes that we get and to the role that government has within our society and within our lives. Uh, and so this focus and set of interviews was looking at how swing voters, uh, based on where they get their news, are aware of what is actually going on on Capitol Hill in uh, looking at the dynamics and the relationships between members of Congress uh, and the current uh, administration and how all of this is working really on the inside, uh, which we do have resources for that. We do have uh, many in media that are covering this and are getting into what we'd say the weeds 
of politics here. They're getting out there into those areas that are just not often seen or even engaged with uh, by the average uh, voter. Uh, so in, in July, uh, the Engages group moderated a pair of online focus groups who voted for Trump in 2016 and for Biden in 2020. Uh, there were a mixture of Democrats. Uh, there were five Democrats, two Republicans, and four independents uh, in Georgia, Florida, Texas, Arizona, and Pennsylvania, uh, which were considered battleground states in the 2020 election. Uh, they did indicate where they get their news from like CNN, Fox, Facebook, local TV stations. Uh, some even cited uh, Google News, Bloomberg, the BBC. Uh, so you might say, as they point out in the article, that many of these swing voters seem to be uh, very well informed or based on what they engage with. And thus, uh, they would uh, understand uh not only what happened in 2020 in ter terms of the election outcome, but might be more engaged in what is going on on Capitol Hill. Uh, one of the questions that was asked was their views about the recent announcement of a bipartisan compromise between Senate Democrats and Republicans on the infrastructure uh, package, but only two of the 11 respondents said they were aware of it. Um, only one additional respondent out of the 11 knew that infrastructure was being pushed by the Biden administration uh, at all. Uh, so, again, the, the question here is the depth of which they're engaged. And if these people who are swing voters who are looking at issues or voting based on issues and, and the candidates and how those align, uh, you would wonder how um, many of them uh, where you would think they'd be much more engaged in what's happening. Now, there's a couple of, uh, of, of things I thought about with this. Uh, one is that uh, coming out of the Trump administration and the Biden administration, especially given the election, given the constant uh, media cycle uh, during the Trump administration, which again, that cycle is continuing, but, but are people as engaged with it? Are they as engaged with news or what kind of news and information are they looking for? For, or have they uh, diminished that concern or that just weary from politics that they've pulled back from it and they're not so much following day to day uh, what, what is happening in Washington, D.C., what's happening with the Biden administration? Uh, maybe, can we say a return to normalcy with quotes around it? I, I don't know. I mean, I think that's, uh, that's one of the reasons uh, that people may not be quite as engaged but we're looking for more polling data on that to see that maybe people are uh, they just needed a break and and thus they were maybe not quite as concerned not saying all people are that way but a lot of people who uh, may be very issue focused um there were some of the questions that were asked here about uh supreme court justice stephen breyer who'd been on the court for 27 years was in the news uh, but uh, only two respondents knew who he was. Uh, the last political figure that was asked about was Vice President Kamala Harris. Uh, though all respondents knew who she was, eight of the respondents said they had a neutral view of her, owing mostly to the fact that they did not know much about her and what she's done in her time in office. Um, when given a hypothetical where Biden does not run for president in 2024 and Harris becomes the Democratic nominee uh, respondents said several things. One said, I don't really know what she's done so far, so I can't say that I would like to see her as the nominee. Uh, another said, it's not like I would totally want to see her as the nominee. It's just the only thing I've heard about her is her house was being rebuilt. And I think she just took her first flight, but that's all I've heard. Uh, another, I don't know much about her. I feel like she's pretty new and she's inexperienced. Um, respondents seem to be more attuned to the economic news than political news, particularly the aspects of how the economy shaped their daily lives. Uh, so when, while right now we have a lot of media attention being given to the economy and its growth, uh, that it is booming, uh, at least to this point in the post-pandemic, uh, well, post-initial pandemic, and again, we just finished talking about the surge of the Delta variant, None of the 11 respondents said they were witnessing a booming economy. Most claimed instead the economy is still recovering 
from the pandemic. Uh, another respondent's views of the housing market more closely resembled the news on the subject because they were tracking what's going on locally. Uh, uh, another aspect of it said 10 of the 11 respondents said their region was less affordable than it was a year ago, and nine said the U.S. has a serious problem with housing affordability. And so, again, the, the awareness of what issues, what are the major issues that are being given attention either in the media uh, or and or on Capitol Hill, and what's going on uh, really behind the scenes in terms of national politics? And, and the way it was approached by this, I think these questions are not so much what's going on in the back rooms with committee meetings and so on. It's just really an awareness of them, that these are being given attention on Capitol Hill uh, and that there are uh, different approaches to them based on party affiliation, either Biden administration or Republicans and Democrats in Congress and the, the diversity among those groups as well and what they're supporting. Uh, and so one of the things I just want to bring out of this that I think is very, very uh, important is that a lot of what happens, a lot of the outcomes that we see, policy outcomes uh, that we see. And so we, we just know that the infrastructure uh, bill uh, was passed uh, and that uh, uh, this was a major outcome for the Biden administration of which there was a bipartisan agreement on enough things to get the votes that they needed uh, that this there's a lot that goes on in Washington trying to influence these outcomes. And I've said before, it's hard to do this without a graphic, but one of the ways to think about it is a network uh, where in the center, in the circle in the center, you put the specific policy issue, and then you can draw lines going out from that. And there are the federal agencies that are involved with it. There's Congress and the political parties in Congress. Uh, there are uh, uh, interest groups uh, that are involved with this as well, that are engaged on, in that particular outcome. And they're all trying to influence that issue, that policy, and, and how it's shaped and how it develops. And so this is where a lot of this goes on, on Capitol Hill, is that engagement between uh, congressional official, uh, members of Congress, elected officials, uh, leads of agencies, lobbying firms, uh, the public engaging with their member of Congress, uh, all of this, and at some point the courts too, depending on what, uh, where a policy is in a certain process and whether it's being challenged, uh, how it's being funded, uh, all of this goes on. And there are sources for that. There are an, uh, a number of media sources that really get inside of specific issues in addition to uh, other print sources like Washington Post or New York Times or uh, newspaper. Uh, what we see on, on television is a little more challenging sometimes because just of the amount of time that they give to a particular news story. Uh, and this is comes back to what I said in the previous segment of the show, is that this can have a lot of influence on political outcomes. People not fully engaged with the issues and what's happening but they have opinions and views on these issues. They're not really sure what's happening on Capitol Hill, or they're un unaware of a particular area that's being given attention. And thus, when a, it becomes moves to the forefront, people respond in different ways based on uh, their values, based on their political culture, uh, based on their, their opinions about a specific issue, whether they have information uh, or not. And again, that can be uh, directed politically toward a, uh, a benefit or support for someone who sees it one way or uh, against a candidate who may be challenging a person for office uh, in another way. So there, there's a lot of, uh, of facets of this, a lot of complexity. Uh, I don't want to scare people off from saying, hey, uh, I don't want to know more about that because it is uh, it is essential for us, even though we may not be able to focus on all issues, that particular issues that are important to us and to our communities, uh, that we do know what is going on behind the scenes, that we are engaged with that, that we uh, that we engage with resources that help to inform us about where particular policy issues uh, and where government is acting. Uh, so again, awareness of what's going on on Capitol Hill, what are the critical issues that are happening right now, what is happening in Congress, uh, what is happening in terms of that give and take with the Biden administration, with state governments, uh, what are the, the those major issues 
that are being addressed by our elected officials. In this last part of the show, I do want to give you a little preview of something that I want to give some time uh, going forward on future shows. And I have addressed this in a general way in the past uh, where we've talked about the politics of civil rights. And I had the opportunity a few weeks ago uh, to do a two-part session uh, on this uh, with a, uh, a, a specific network with a, with a company where uh, they promote diversity within the company and they address uh, particular issues in terms of having speakers in and trying to uh, talk about issues related to uh, diversity and how that impacts the workplace, how it impacts uh, people involved with that particular business. And so this, of course, wrapped in uh, a couple of things, a couple of current issues. Uh, one was the uh, commemoration earlier this year of the 100th anniversary uh, of the Tulsa uh, race riots, so the, uh, the Tulsa race massacre is what it's being called now, uh, where um, in, in Tulsa, uh, the uh, June 1st, 1921, uh, where uh, there was the burning of black owned businesses, uh, this all started with a supposed engagement uh, between a, uh, a black man and a uh, woman in a, an elevator uh, where she said that the, uh, the man uh, touched her in a particular way. And so she was claiming uh, that uh, she was assaulted. And of course, all of this, everything broke loose and uh, people uh, started taking up arms and uh, wanted to do a lynching and of course some wanted to defend the person and for due process and then it just really got out of hand and you you saw hundreds of businesses that were burned thousands of people displaced uh, hundreds that were killed uh, in in all of this one of the the most uh, uh, deadliest uh, race riots or massacres in the history of the country and one of the things about it was that it really wasn't until the latter part of the 20th century that this began to be given uh, more attention uh, with the 75th anniversary celebrated in 1996, or not celebrated, but commemorated, I should say, uh, that in 2001, the Race Riot Commission established. 2018, almost a century later, uh, the commission renamed the Race Massacre Commission and then in 2021, this was given this year, was given a lot of attention nationally uh, by the president uh, and by many others. And, and you see, it was a century later before this really moves into the mainstream and people began to see the event for what it was. And so I use this as a basis of, of saying, why do we need to go back and look at uh, the history of civil rights and the struggle of civil rights? Why do we need to go back and be aware of these events that were very challenging? And it's because of one, at one, one that we, we're maybe not aware of them, that it's taken so long for them to move into uh, the mainstream, into the public conscious as looking at this and, and understanding what happened and how it impacted many lives and families and a community. Uh, and, and what what were those impacts over time? Uh, this is one of the things that's at the focus of the debate over critical race theory uh, that we talked about, had a show on with Dr. Derek Lehman uh, last month in trying to understand what this is and how it works as a research tool to go back and, and not focus on assigning blame to people today or to, to uh, uh, identifying and calling people racist because of what happened in the past. It's trying to look back at these events and try to understand them and what impact they had and looking at them within the struggle, the lengthy struggle that we have and continue to have in many areas related uh, to civil rights. And, and so this was part of the presentation and part of it also uh, was helping people to understand the difference between civil liberties and civil rights and how they are connected. Uh, civil liberties being those liberties to which the individual's entitled by virtue of the person's humanity. Uh, in the United States, we see civil liberties uh, embodied in the Bill of Rights, uh, such as uh, freedom of religion, uh, freedom of speech, uh, uh, the uh, other, other freedoms that are identified there uh, that are a basic liberties, freedoms that people should have, not because government gives those to you, but because they are uh, 
they belong to you as a human being, and you should be able to have that level of freedom uh, to live and function and pursue opportunity in life, and as we say, uh, happiness. They represent fundamental values and thus limits on government uh, related to those liberties. Civil rights, on the other hand, are rights guaranteed to citizens by the state, distinguished from civil liberties in two ways, in that civil rights apply to the rights of groups, whether ethnic, racial, or religious, as opposed to individual rights, and the historical evolution from the classical conception to the idea of constitutional freedoms in a democracy. So this is the way we understand them within our democracy and uh, the rights that are given to us, whether they're, they're political rights, economic rights, so forth, that are a part of our constitution that are related to our citizenship and being a member uh, or resident even in some cases of uh, of the state, the, the nation that we live in. Uh, and thus, these are rights that our constitutional uh, our constitution identifies uh, and gives uh, to people. Uh, so I, I think this was important. I want to build on this going forward uh, because this is an area that we don't give enough attention to in understanding that there are political aspects to this as well. And that's something I want to get into uh, when I come back to this in, in a second, third, and maybe even a fourth part of this uh, in talking about the politics of civil rights and how our, much we are aware uh, of what uh, political influences are there and, and of contemporary civil rights issues uh, within uh, the political sphere and the role of government. Uh, I want to thank you for joining me today. I know it was all me today, but we'll be back with more interviews uh, in the near future as we cover critical issues. Uh, please uh, like us on Facebook and look at the articles that I post that go with the stories I've covered today. Uh, also, if you missed any part of the show today, you can go to SoundCloud. That's On Politics with Eric Morrow, and you can look, listen to this episode after it airs at tarletonradio.com. We live stream during the show or on KTRL 90.5 FM. So that's on SoundCloud or also wherever you get your podcast. So we thank you for joining us today right here on KTRL 90.5 FM. And join us again next week, Sundays at noon, for another episode of On Politics. Network podcast with production from me, Taylor Welch, and me, Brianna Blanks. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.